You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 338 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the 155 plus years since the guns fell silent at Gettysburg, most accounts of the epic contest have focused primarily on the general who lost the battle. In a way, this isn't really surprising. After all, with Robert E. Lee, you have a general of acknowledged talent, the architect of startling victories, who then spectacularly fails his greatest test. Even with the rise of the lost cause narrative in the post-war decades, the accounts shifted to rationalizing the outcome of the campaign, but a peerless Lee remained center stage. Even more recent historians of Gettysburg have too often given little credit to the general who actually won the battle. To varying degrees, they paint a picture of a Union Army commander who is largely passive and whose decisions play little role in the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg. We, however, happen to think such a portrayal is not only inaccurate, but is a shame, and we think that Major General George Gordon Meade the Union Army commander who kicked Bobby Lee's tail at Gettysburg deserves some time in the spotlight. From early on June 28, 1863, when he was thrust into command of the Army of the Potomac, George Meade had to achieve several seemingly contrary objectives. In a note accompanying President Abraham Lincoln's order appointing Meade to Army Command, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck directed Meade both to operate against the invading Confederate Army while at the same time protecting Baltimore and Washington. Halleck's orders obliged Meade to disrupt the Confederate advance toward the Susquehanna River and the Pennsylvania state capital of Harrisburg, while simultaneously guarding the approaches to Washington and Baltimore. To accomplish the former, he had to pursue the rebel army northward. To accomplish the latter, he had to protect a broad front against a southward turn by Lee. 
The obligation to keep the Army of the Potomac spread out across a wide front to prevent Lee from making end runs around its right toward Baltimore or its left toward Washington was complicated by Meade's uncertainty about the whereabouts of Lee's forces. On the morning of June 28th, the rebel forces were in fact spread out in a 60-mile-long arc in Pennsylvania, with Ewell's Corps divided and pressing up to the Susquehanna, threatening Harrisburg, while the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia was positioned back near Chambersburg. Meade was reasonably well informed of Ewell's location, but the exact positions of Longstreet's Corps and Hill's Corps was less certain. However, Meade recognized that the dispersed situation of Lee's forces presented him with the opportunity to possibly catch elements of the divided rebel army and destroy them in detail. A message to Halleck early on June 29th makes clear that Meade's thoughts were turning towards seizing this opportunity. It was an aggressive plan by a combative commander. Confirmation of Meade's aggressive instincts is confirmed in letters to his wife. On June 29th, he wrote to her that he was, quote, moving at once against Lee, end quote. And later that day, he said that the army was marching, quote, as fast as we can to relieve Harrisburg, end quote. Noting that his army was in good spirits and had been reinforced, Meade told his wife, I'm going straight at them and will settle this thing one way or the other. Meade's remarks on June 29th reveal him to be thinking aggressively, aware of the opportunity to possibly catch the enemy army in an awkward situation and perhaps attack and destroy parts of it in detail. Though Meade didn't manage to overtake Lee's forces and destroy them piecemeal, his advance northward did contribute to the relief of Harrisburg, as Lee, when he learned of the approach of the Federal Army and the danger to his scattered forces, ordered Ewell to pull back from the Susquehanna and rejoin the rest of the rebel army. By late morning of June 30th, Meade was aware that Lee had recalled Ewell's corps, though he was unsure where Ewell was heading. He was also aware that Longstreet's corps had moved north from Maryland toward Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, but was similarly unsure about Longstreet's destination. Only the location of A.P. Hill's Corps, reported to be holding Cashtown Pass over South Mountain between Chambersburg and Gettysburg, seemed certain. By the evening of June 30th, it appeared to Meade that Longstreet and Hill were at or around Chambersburg, partly toward Gettysburg, while Ewell's forces, to the east, were at Carlisle and York. But uncertainty about Lee's plans continued, and until the rebel commander's intentions became clearer, the initiative was still largely in Lee's hands, and so Meade would have to remain flexible and ready to adapt to the changing situation. Meade told his subordinates to, quote, hold their commands in readiness at a moment's notice and upon receiving orders to march against the enemy, end quote. Meade continued to pester his cavalry to locate the enemy. Though his focus was on gaining a clearer picture of Lee's intentions, 
Meade still hoped an opportunity would present itself for the Army of the Potomac to take the offensive. As part of remaining watchful and flexible, Meade began to explore possible spots where he might offer the enemy battle at the best possible advantage to the Army of the Potomac. And so, about midday on June 30th, he sent Brigadier General A.A. Humphreys to assess the Emmitsburg, Maryland area. While he directed his chief engineer, Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, to explore several other areas in northern Maryland. That evening, Meade also issued marching orders for July 1st to his corps commanders. Still uncertain of where the Confederates were and where they intended to go, he directed the Union cavalry to screen, quote, the front and the flanks, well out in all directions, end quote. His most forward unit, Reynolds' First Corps, was to proceed to Gettysburg that first day of July, with Howard's Eleventh Corps also moving to Gettysburg or within supporting distance, while Sickles' Third Corps would go to Emmitsburg, a dozen miles south of Gettysburg. Hancock's Second Corps would march to Tawnytown, Maryland, where Army Headquarters was located while Slocum's 12th Corps would go to two taverns, just a few miles southeast of Gettysburg. Sykes' 5th Corps would move up to Hanover, Pennsylvania, nearly 15 miles east of Gettysburg, while Sedgwick's more distant 6th Corps was to march to Manchester, Maryland. Meade's marching orders for July 1st indicate that he regarded it as probable that the enemy would be concentrating somewhere near Gettysburg, and that he wanted to strengthen his own left and center against any action by Lee's main force. The fact that Gettysburg was a major road junction clearly indicated to Meade that the rebels might use it as a point of concentration. For the same reason, it could also serve as a forward base from which the Federals might conduct reconnaissance against the enemy. It's important to keep in mind that when Meade issued his marching orders for July 1st, he didn't have positive knowledge that Lee was concentrating near Gettysburg or even that Ewell's forces had left Carlisle and York. That meant that Meade had to cover his bases, so he would place Sedgwick's 6th Corps at Manchester to the east and Sickles' 3rd Corps at Emmitsburg to the west, to protect against the army being flanked, either by Yule to the east or Longstreet to the west. So let's ask, why did Meade send Reynolds to Gettysburg? What did Meade expect to happen there on July 1st? Well, Meade was certainly in no hurry to occupy the town. He intended that the 1st and 11th Corps should occupy the town, or in the case of the 11th, be just a stone's throw away, only by mid-afternoon on July 1st. Accordingly, since there was no particular sense of urgency to the movement, Reynolds didn't start his troops toward Gettysburg until about 8 a.m. that morning. Soon after getting underway, Reynolds told his artillery commander that he didn't expect any fighting that day, and that they were only moving up to Gettysburg in order to support Buford's Union Cavalry, which would push out farther from the crossroads town to locate the Confederates and find out what they were up to. 
But what should Reynolds do if he did encounter a strong Confederate force? Meade's orders for July 1st were silent on that subject. But just the day before, on June 30th, he had given directions for just such an eventuality to Reynolds, who at that time was located at Marsh Creek, about six miles from Gettysburg. Meade had instructed Reynolds that he could fall back to Emmitsburg if, quote, it is your judgment that you would be in a better position at Emmitsburg than where you are, end quote, and that, quote, you must fall back, end quote, to Emmitsburg if either the 1st or 11th Corps encountered an advance by the Confederates in force. Meade assured Reynolds that at Emmitsburg, he would reinforce Reynolds with Sickles Third and Slocum's Twelfth Corps. Meade told Reynolds that with Buford's Union cavalry acting as the Army's eyes and ears, Reynolds should have ample information about the enemy to decide whether to hold Gettysburg or fall back to Emmitsburg. So, all of that's to say that at least on June 30th, mind you, Meade was thinking that if Reynolds found that the Confederates were advancing on Gettysburg on July 1st, then he, Meade, was trusting Reynolds to know whether to hold Gettysburg or pull back to Emmitsburg, with that decision seemingly dependent largely on whether Reynolds found he was facing a portion of the rebel army or was actually up against Lee's main force. Furthermore, Meade was certainly expecting that Buford's Union cavalry would provide John Reynolds with sufficient information upon which to base his decision. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. During the evening of June 30th and the early morning of July 1st, George Meade received conflicting reports about the whereabouts of the Confederate Army. Such conflicting reports didn't offer Meade reliable intelligence about Lee's intentions. 
Meade's continuing uncertainty about his counterpart's intentions was reflected in a message he sent to Reynolds on the morning of July 1st. Meade's message to Reynolds indicated that with the initiative still in Lee's hands, the Army of the Potomac's actions would necessarily have to be in reaction to the enemy's point of concentration, and much would depend on where the rebels were concentrating their army in relation to Reynolds' position at Gettysburg. Meade admitted that he was, quote, not sufficiently well informed of the nature of the country to judge its character for either an offensive or defensive position, end quote. Therefore, Meade asked Reynolds for information about the enemy's whereabouts and for advice about the nature of the terrain at Gettysburg. Though evidently open to fighting at Gettysburg, Meade reminded Reynolds that the movement of the First Corps to the crossroads town had been ordered before definite knowledge of the enemy's whereabouts and intentions had been obtained. John Reynolds almost certainly never received that message from Meade, but the note is nevertheless significant since it indicates that 1. Meade was still uncertain where Lee was concentrating the rebel army, 2. Meade was willing to consider fighting at Gettysburg if Reynolds found the ground and situation there advantageous, and 3. Meade remained concerned that Reynolds shouldn't engage with a superior enemy force. Also on the morning of July 1st, Meade rode east from Army headquarters at Tawnytown to inspect the Pipe Creek area, one of the potential battlefields that Governor K. Warren had been investigating. Having heard nothing from Reynolds by mid-morning, Meade decided that the Pipe Creek line offered an excellent position covering both Baltimore and Washington while giving the Army of the Potomac ready access to supplies that could be brought to the nearby railhead at Westminster, Maryland. Meade by this time was also certainly aware that rather than fighting a portion of the Army of Northern Virginia, it was now much more likely he would be facing the entire Confederate Army after it had been successfully concentrated by Lee. And therefore, if he, Meade, could fight the coming battle defensively, on ground of his own choosing, it would go a long way toward negating the advantage Lee had in possessing the initiative. George Meade was also no doubt very aware that he himself was untested in battle as a commanding general, and that although he didn't lack confidence in his abilities, he knew he would be better able to manage his army if it were fighting defensively, since an army on the move and fighting offensively adds layers of complexity to the command situation. And remember, he had only actually been in command a few days. On June 27th, George Meade had been just one of seven infantry corps commanders in the Army of the Potomac. Then on June 28th, he found himself unexpectedly thrust into Army command in the midst of an ongoing campaign. And so, once it became much more likely that he would be facing not just a portion of Lee's forces, but rather the entire Confederate army in a showdown battle, it's hard to fault George Meade for formulating a plan to fight that battle defensively, on ground of his own choosing, 
thus securing every possible advantage for himself and for the Army of the Potomac. As y'all are already aware, Meade instructed his staff to prepare and issue to his corps commanders what came to be known as the Pipe Creek Circular. Meade would say that his intention with the circular was to have in place, quote, a general plan, perfectly understood by all, for receiving an attack if made in strong force, end quote. So if a portion of the army were attacked in force by the Confederates, Meade intended for that detachment to engage the enemy just long enough to send word to Meade and to the rest of the army so that the entire army of the Potomac might withdraw in good good order behind the Pipe Creek line. To coordinate the movements of the various corps toward Pipe Creek, Meade specified the route each formation should take when falling back. Meade could have expected that the Pipe Creek plan would be in the hands of each of his corps commanders by noon on July 1st. The plan was developed for a contingency, that is, the possibility of an attack by the enemy, quote unquote, in strong force upon a portion of the Army of the Potomac, but this was the contingency that Meade most expected to actually occur. In that event, the actions and movements of the various dispersed elements of his army simply couldn't be left to chance. Coordination would be essential, and Meade was wise enough to prepare his army for that most likely possibility. In the letters conveying the Pipe Creek plan to the Corps commanders, Meade expressed his expectation that it would be Reynolds who came into contact with the enemy, and that Reynolds would fall back, and that Pipe Creek would be the battleground. In a message sent at noon to Halleck in Washington, Meade informed the General-in-Chief of his plans, saying, quote, I shall prepare to receive an attack in case Lee makes one. A battlefield is being selected to the rear, on which the army can be rapidly concentrated on Pipe Creek, covering my depot at Westminster. Meade told Halleck he was making these plans in line with, quote, fighting my army to the best advantage, end quote. The Pipe Creek circular and Meade's communication to Reynolds, Halleck, and others indicate that through noontime on July 1st, his thinking had turned primarily to fighting the upcoming battle defensively, on ground of his own choosing. With Lee's army most likely in the act of concentrating somewhere ahead of him, and likely to come into contact with the Federals at a spot with which Meade was not familiar, Meade decided the best course open to him was to try to draw the Confederate commander into a fight on ground of Meade's own choosing. Meade never explicitly ruled out Gettysburg as a battlefield, but Pipe Creek was clearly the ground he had selected. It seems safe to say that it was George Meade's expectation on the morning of July 1st that what was most likely about to occur is that Reynolds would find himself engaging a superior enemy force at Gettysburg, that Reynolds would then fall back south to join the rest of the army behind Pipe Creek. But while that may have been the commanding general's expectation on the morning of the 1st, the day was still young. And as it turned out, and as you guys already know, 
events taking place at Gettysburg on July 1st were even then rendering George Meade's carefully thought out plans obsolete. Bivouacked six miles south of Gettysburg, the Federal First Corps began its march to the crossroads town only about 8 a.m. on July 1st, suggesting that John Reynolds didn't expect the Confederates to reach Gettysburg before him and that he attached no urgency at all to occupying the place. By contrast, on the Confederate side, A.P. Hill's advance element, the division of Harry Heath, had started its march to Gettysburg at least three hours earlier. And so when Reynolds arrived at Gettysburg, he found Buford's Union cavalry fighting a delaying action against Heath's rebel infantry, and Reynolds hurried the lead division of his First Corps forward to Buford's support. The question of what Reynolds was thinking with regard to the fighting at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st will never be known with certainty, since a rebel bullet killed him as he was placing his troops, and so he never had a chance to write a post-battle report or explain his intentions. However, Reynolds' actions, as well as the message he sent to Meade and the one he he sent off to Otis Howard to hurry forward the 11th Corps, seemed to indicate that Reynolds had very quickly decided he was going to make a fight of it at Gettysburg, and at the time of his death, he probably didn't expect that George Meade would do anything other than support him in that decision. John Reynolds, of course, never received the Pipe Creek Circular, and as Tracy just said, he never got the chance to explain his intentions. So we'll never know whether Reynolds intended the action at Gettysburg to be a delaying action, or whether he saw it as the opening act of a full-blown battle. At any rate, at Army headquarters at Tawnytown, some 14 miles south of Gettysburg, George Meade was engaged in an extended conversation with 2nd Corps Commander Winfield Scott Hancock when he received news of the fighting at the crossroads town. Hancock recollected his conversation with Meade began about 11 o'clock, and it's likely the news of the fighting at Gettysburg arrived at Army headquarters about noon. By 12.30, Meade was moving troops toward Gettysburg, although his goal wasn't so much to fight there as to cover Reynolds' anticipated withdrawal. But Meade was worried that Reynolds might withdraw to Emmitsburg, as had been discussed on June 30th, rather than back to Tawnytown, as directed in the Pipe Creek Circular. If Reynolds fell back to Emmitsburg, it would leave the Federal Center vulnerable, and so at half-past twelve, Meade ordered Hancock and the Second Corps from Tawnytown toward Gettysburg to make certain the Federal Center was covered. However, when the news of Reynolds' death reached Army headquarters about 1 p.m., Meade, quote, directed General Hancock to proceed to Gettysburg and take command of the troops there and particularly to advise me of the condition of affairs there and the practicality of fighting a battle there. Before Hancock departed for Gettysburg, he was given written orders from Meade, which stated, 
If you think the ground and the position there a better one to fight a battle under existing circumstances, you will so advise the general, and he will order all the troops up. End quote. And so, by the time Hancock departed, Meade obviously had a dawning awareness that the fighting which had broken out at Gettysburg and Reynolds' death may have already wrecked his Pipe Creek plans and that he might now have to be ready to confront Lee at or near Gettysburg, although he was placing the decision about the choice of battlefield in Hancock's hands. In a report sent to Meade at 5.25 p.m. from Gettysburg, Hancock offered his lukewarm opinion that, quote, the ground appears not unfavorable with good troops, end quote, although he thought the position could be, quote, easily turned. In fact, Hancock declined to take the responsibility of making an actual recommendation and tossed the ball back at Meade, offering the not-so-helpful observation, quote, I think we can retire. If not, we can fight here, end quote. An aide relayed Hancock's thoughts, such as they were, to Meade orally a little after 6 p.m., while the written report didn't reach Tawnytown until about an hour later. Hancock subsequently reported to Meade in person. But long before Hancock's evasive report reached Meade, the commanding general had taken the decision back into his own hands. Meade later testified before a congressional committee, quote, I did not wait for the report from General Hancock, but immediately commenced to move my troops to the front, being determined to fight a battle there. While not inaccurate, Meade's account telescopes his decision-making process. The record actually indicates that his decision to send the rest of the army to Gettysburg occurred in several stages, beginning at about the time Hancock left Tawnytown for Gettysburg and concluding at 7.30 that night. The evolution of Meade's thinking during the afternoon hinged on his developing a better understanding of the situation of the Confederate Army, prompting him to order Slocum's 12th and Sykes' 5th Corps to Gettysburg, then later issuing orders for Sickles' 3rd and Sedgwick's 6th Corps to march to the town. Sickles had actually already decided to march most of his command to Gettysburg in response to a plea for help from Otis Howard, but by 7.30 p.m., Meade ordered the rear elements of the Third Corps to also move up to Gettysburg. Having taken steps to concentrate his army, what did Meade think might happen at Gettysburg on July 2nd? Well, based on the reports he had of the Confederate forces engaged at Gettysburg on the 1st, Meade's expressed intention was to catch Hill's and Ewell's Corps at Gettysburg before Longstreet could join them, although, as he sensibly told Halleck, quote, circumstances during the night may alter this decision. Meade even delayed his departure for Gettysburg for quite some time, hoping that he would get to talk face-to-face with 6th Corps Commander John Sedgwick. In the end, he missed Sedgwick, but it's clear that on the night of July 1st, 
Meade was planning to launch an attack at Gettysburg the next day, even before the Sixth Corps could arrive on the battlefield. In any case, after waiting in vain for Sedgwick at Tawnytown, George Meade finally departed for Gettysburg about 10 p.m. So what we wanted to show here is that the true picture of Meade on July 1st at Tawnytown was not one of inactivity, indecision, or passivity, as some historians have chosen to portray it. Once the uncertainties that had given him pause on June 30th were resolved, Meade reverted to the aggressive thinking that had characterized his first two days in command. Based on the reports he was getting from Gettysburg throughout the afternoon of July 1st, he believed there was an opportunity to attack Hill's and Ewell's Corps there before Longstreet could arrive. And so, between 1 and 4 p.m., Meade ordered five of his seven corps to concentrate at Gettysburg. Within the next three hours, he ordered his two remaining corps forward. Of course, Meade's hope to catch Lee's army divided at Gettysburg and destroy it in detail there was soon to be disappointed. But nevertheless, his initiatives on the afternoon of July 1st resulted in enough of his troops arriving in Gettysburg by the morning of the 2nd to occupy vital points on the battlefield, positions that would be crucial to his ultimate victory over Robert E. Lee. In the end, Gettysburg, though not the offensive victory he had perhaps envisioned before setting out from Tawnytown, would still be a victory nonetheless, one to which the decisions Meade had taken on the afternoon of July 1st significantly contributed. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And while we're eagerly anticipating picking up a copy of Kent Masterson Brown's new book, Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command, it unfortunately won't be out for about seven more months. Yep, uh, that won't be out until June 2021. So for now, we'll re-recommend Mead, The Price of Command by John Selby, and also suggest you might check out Searching for George Gordon Mead, The Forgotten Victor of Gettysburg by Tim Huntington. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Plus, did you know Meade was a Pennsylvanian? Well, actually, he was born in Spain, and his family was from Philadelphia, so he was from the wrong side of the state, since the western part is the best part, but still... Rich, rich. Okay. Um, anyway... As we bring the curtain down on this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to James, Penny, Dallas, and Daryl, Ian, Bob, Eric, Lee, and Ken, Paul, Joe, Matt, Ronald, and Steve. And thanks to Suzanne H., Nicholas P., Mads L., and RJ for their donations. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks everyone. Bye.